This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, May 3rd, 2018. I'm Caleb Brown. If we were serious about federal spending restraint, what would we do? From entitlements to military spending to tax cuts, the pressure to spend more and create ever larger deficits seems irresistible. Kurt Couchman is vice president for public policy at Defense Strategies. We spoke last month about getting the Fed's fiscal house in order. We got a little taste of budgetary restraint in the middle of the Obama years with this sequester. And um, at various times, congressional Republicans and President Obama were both really in favor of it. And then at various times, congressional Republicans and Barack Obama were not in favor of it. And it seems that uh, whatever appetite there is for getting at a balanced budget, it's, it's almost always fleeting. And depending on who's in power and who wants to move more sludge through the process, um, they're either for it or against it. So if we were serious about getting to a credible requirement for uh, a balanced spending in Congress, what, where, where should we start? Well, first, we have to recognize the problem. Uh, it's common knowledge, I think it's common knowledge at this point, that the federal budget is unsustainable. And with the newest CBO budget and economic outlook, we're looking at almost a trillion dollar deficits next fiscal year, the fiscal year that starts in September of this calendar year, and above a trillion dollars and growing uh, beyond that. But you're absolutely right. I mean, both parties have tried to get while the getting's good. When Democrats had super majorities in both houses um, under the first year, uh, first two years of the Obama administration, they passed the Affordable Care Act, they passed Dodd-Frank, they passed a fiscal stimulus bill. And now that Republicans have all three branches, they've done what Republicans did when they had all three branches last decade, which is to spend, 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 and cut taxes in ways that uh, are indeed pro-growth, and that's a good thing. Um, but they do uh, exacerbate the underlying fiscal problems that we have. So I would say to get a hold of the situation, we need to have some sort of a credible backstop so that when uh, a party comes to power and they want to do difficult things, want to make the difficult trade-offs to get our budget on a more sustainable path, that they know that the next Congress that comes along or several Congresses down the road can't just roll it all back and reap all the political benefits from doing that, from handing out the goodies. So I do think that a balanced budget rule or some sort of fiscal rule uh, has the benefit of pr providing that sort of uh, credibility that once the hard choices are made, they won't just be simply and easily undone by whoever comes into power next. So you've written some of these bills I have, before. Yeah. So uh, it, in your mind, what what's the key element here? And you're, you're not just talking about a House rule or a Senate rule. You're talking about a balanced budget amendment. Sure. So what what is essential to that? To amend the Constitution, you need two-thirds support in both houses of Congress plus three-fourths of the state legislatures. So you need consensus. You need it to be bipartisan. You can't have provisions that will upset one side or the other or alienate one side or the other. You have to have a fair process. And in order to do that in a rule setting, it has to be pretty broad. It has to be not specific. You can't try to legislate through the Constitution. If you read the Constitution, it's a series of mostly general principles or the organization of government. 
There's nothing in the Constitution that is self-enforcing. There's a few things that kind of hint at enforcement measures, but at the end of the day, um, the Constitution is a bunch of principles, and then it's up to Congress to write implementing legislation to carry those principles into actual flesh and blood practice. Okay, so to begin, uh, if consensus is the thing that is required, that does not seem to be in uh, ready supply in Congress right now. Well, it depends on the issue. Uh, if you look at the National Defense well, if, Authorization Act, if the issue Act, is spending, sure, they all agree on it. Yeah, yeah. If we if we want to spend more, no problem. Let's go go ahead and do that. Um, but yeah, so like the National Defense Authorization Act. I mean, that d- defending the country is the prime responsibility of the federal government. Yes, we could do it much better. But when the bill is up and members are deciding, do I vote for this thing or against this thing? You know, most of them, you know, in excess of 80% most of the time will vote for it because they want to show that they're in favor of national defense. Uh, And I think that could be true with fiscal rules as well. But the process matters. It has to be an inclusive process. Uh, Republicans and Democrats have to work together from the beginning, not only on the proposal itself, the joint resolution that would become the amendment that would be sent to states, but also the implementing legislation, a plan for getting into balance initially over a many year period of time, frankly. One of the realities that we have to accept with respect to a balanced budget amendment is that the trajectory of the you know the lines between spending and revenue, you know one of those lines has to change. That's right. And so and that seems to be probably both honestly. probably both. So what you know, how do we get? a broad agreement on uh, getting those lines to change. I mean, it seems like Republicans are simply not interested in generally cutting uh, military spending. Mm-hmm. In fact, President Trump's one of his first things when he came into office, well, let's boost the Pentagon. Sure. And, uh, you know, when I think back on, and I, I do often, Rand Paul's first speech in the U.S. Senate, he talked about compromise. Mm-hmm. And he he, as far as he was concerned, he put military spending on the table. Right. That has to be on the table, right? Sure. Everything has to be on the table. And, uh, you know, at defense priorities, we spend a lot of time talking about defense and foreign policy. And it's true there are a lot of missions that the armed forces and also the State Department uh, is engaged in that uh, don't necessarily provide value to the American taxpayers. And so we absolutely should look at those. Uh, we should get our allies to do more for their own defense. We should make sure that what we're doing is actually in the American national interest uh, and not in the interest of an ally that could be taking care of things for themselves. So point well taken. Uh, that said, you know, de- defense spending is about one-sixth of the federal budget. Um, autopilot direct spending, sometimes called mandatory spending, that's about 70% of the federal budget. And the, so non-defense discretionary is a shrinking share of the federal budget. It's a small and shrinking share. That's right. It's on the order of defense discretionary, although a little bit smaller. Um, but it's that 70%. That's what's really growing as a share of GDP. And that's what we have to figure out how to make sustainable for the long run. So that's your Social Security. It's Medicare. It's Medicaid. It's the Affordable Care Act subsidies. Um, it's pensions. You know, Federal, uh, civilian, and military pensions are part of this. Veterans benefits. These all need to be looked at. And we won't necessarily necessarily need to find savings in in all of them or to the same degree in all of them. But um, those are the areas that are growing rapidly and we need to look at them and everything else. In terms of getting to a sort of global, you know, uh, here's what's coming in, here's what's going out, here's how much we've borrowed to cover the gap. Um, it, it It seems like a gargantuan task. Is there, in your view, do you have to separate the process of 
deciding how much we're going to spend from the process of here's how we're going to spend it? To an extent, but I think it's all interconnected. I mean, ultimately what Congress does is it makes trade-offs between different priorities. And those priorities can be spend more on defense or spend more on domestic matters. It can be, you know, let's cut taxes and under a balanced budget requirement, if you want to cut taxes, you've got to cut the spending too. If you want to spend more, you've got to raise the taxes. If you want to increase military spending and have tax cuts, well, then you need to offset it out of uh, domestic spending, discretionary and direct spending. Uh, So that's the idea that, you know, there should be priorities. There are priorities. Uh, Our security is the the utmost one. And that uh, it shouldn't be possible for Congress to escape the tough choices. If you want to do something, well, there's always a cost. There's no free lunch. And right now we're just sort of passing the bill to the next generation. It's not fair to them. Um, you know, each generation should pay for itself. And we need to move in that direction for moral reasons and also for prudential reasons. So what appetite is there for that right now? I mean, I've heard, I've heard Mike Lee make noises about it, but, you know, I... It always seems like a third-tier priority. It is usually a third-tier priority. Um, But you remember, after the uh, early Obama years, deficits and debt were a big priority. Uh, I think it was about $6 trillion less in public debt than we have now. And the Tea Party grew out partly in response to the Affordable Care Act and some other things. But deficits and debt were certainly a part of that. At the time, deficits were over a trillion dollars a year due to low low, uh, revenue, um, suppressed economic growth because of the recession and the responses to it, uh, and the stimulus package. And now we're entering another time with uh, deficits exceeding a trillion dollars a year and growing unsustainably. Uh, So, you know, the public attention will probably return to this if it hasn't already. It has started already in some circles. And we've seen that even even though there are a lot of things about the Bipartisan Budget Act of 2018 that I did not like. Uh, One silver lining was the Joint Select Committee on Budget and Appropriations Reform. You have eight Republicans, eight Democrats that are working together to try try to find a better way to spend that 30% and shrinking pie uh, part of the federal government. So um, there's a lot of work to be done. There is some interest. Uh, I think most members just don't know where to begin because budget is complicated. And frankly, the budget process is more complicated than it needs to be. And simplification needs to be part of the process as well. As a first step, is zero baseline budgeting an option? It doesn't, that, that's always, it's always offered as, as a solution, typically by Republicans, but it doesn't ever, it doesn't ever seem to be uh, something that sticks around. Sure. I mean, it's a nice idea. I'm not opposed to it. But the political reality is that we're always starting with wherever we are, the tyranny of the status quo, they call it. And so if you're going to change from what we're doing now, then you've got to make that case. It's always going to be compared to where we are now. You know, the, the DC budget math is if we're going to spend less than projections say we were otherwise going to spend, that's considered a cut. I mean, in real people terms, that's craziness. But in DC terms, well, you know, it's relative to the status quo baseline. And so that's the way we talk about it here. What are the weaknesses in the proposals that some members of the House and Senate have been throwing around recently? Sure. There are actually a lot of different problems, some procedural and some, you know, in the the language itself. The procedural problem is that the sides don't talk to each other, right? There's a handful of more conservative Democrats that put out their balanced budget amendment, and that carves certain programs out of the balance rule. Uh, It would set aside balance if there's a war, if there's a recession, that kind of thing. Republicans do similar things. Uh, They 
would they would uh, establish a supermajority for increasing taxes. They would limit uh, federal spending to some percentage of GDP. Uh, both sides uh, make the mistake of uh, putting annual balance in their proposals. Um, but even before getting to the common problems, both sides don't talk to each other. When I was working for a member in 2011, uh, when we were working with Republicans and Democrats to try to build support for the proposal that we had written, uh, that member went up and talked to a senior Democrat member of the House. And that member, who should have been in the loop the whole time with Republicans in the weeks and months leading up to this vote, um, hadn't been approached by a single Republican member of the House, not in leadership, not rank and file, until my boss did. And so that's the starting point for forging a consensus, is talking to people. And on some issues, Congress is very good about working across the aisle and talking with each other. But for whatever reason on this one, maybe because um, I hate to say it, but maybe our side likes to have it more as an issue than to actually try to get it done um, in the same way that sometimes Democrats can be accused of preferring to have immigration as an issue rather than solving the problem. So I am actually interested in solving the problem. And uh, when it comes to the substance of these proposals, the the core problem is trying to do annual balance. Uh, when you tie spending and revenue that tightly together, any little blip in the economy means that you're scrambling to cut spending and increase taxes to close that gap every single year. And some states did this uh, or do this. Michigan has like quarterly conferences where they come together and figure out how they need to adjust their budget. That doesn't make a lot of sense. Economists overwhelmingly support balancing uh, over the business cycle. Uh, so not every year, but you know, when the economy is good, uh, we should be running surpluses to sort of pay back uh, some of that debt. When the economy is not doing well, when we're in a recession or even a slow period, have some deficits to kind of fill that gap and then make sure that we're balanced over the medium term. Um, other problems, you know, putting the president's budget in the constitution, that risks dramatically changing the balance of powers putting statutory things in the Constitution, whether it's outlays or fiscal year or the debt limit, that doesn't make sense. Actually, the debt limit should be replaced by any coherent set of budget rules. The other big problem is, uh, uh, I guess you could call it the, uh, the safety valve. Uh, in the one that was just voted on last week in the House, there's a general three-fifths to um, not balance the budget. But then if we're in a war, then it's just a majority vote. So you could, uh, in theory at least, have wars that don't have three-fifths support, that have like a bare majority of support that carry on even though nothing else um, can be provided for through deficits during that time. Um, so that's a problem. And then finally, uh, the transition to balance. Look, it's hard to do these things. Politically, it's hard. Technically, it can be hard drafting the language, forging the political consensus, uh, all of that. And even like the House Republican budget, which was supposed to balance in 10 years, the last one that was done last year, um, no one believed that those assumptions were going to become law. If we're talking about something that actually has to get 60 votes in the Senate, a majority in the House, and be signed by the president, um, that's going to be harder to do. You're going to need at least 10 years after ratification. And ratification might take a couple of years in and of itself. But this notion that five years after ratification, or I've seen as short as two years after ratification, the budget has to be balanced. And that's just not something that can be done realistically. So I think there are, there is one proposal in particular that really uh, has a lot of promise. It's the one that Congressman Dave Bratt introduced. And that's really just based on a set of principles. Balance, um, not every year, but over 
a period of years to accommodate economic conditions, two-thirds supermajority for um, any sort of um, safety valve for emergency situations, and then 10 years to get to balance. And then everything else is left to implementing legislation, uh, which is in the control of the budget committees, um, and that could be changed over time through the regular process. Um, I think it's key to get the Senate on board with this concept because the Senate has more of a consensus atmosphere than the House does. The House is very acrimonial and partisan at times, whereas in the Senate, to get things done, you rely a lot on consent and consensus already, and so this seems like a natural fit over there. I think it can be done. I think there's a a lot of opportunities to write good implementing legislation. I've been working on that and talking about it with staff in the House and the Senate, so uh, I'm hopeful, uh, maybe even uh, more optimistic than I should be, but uh, I think this would be a really important thing to help get our government back on track. Kurt Couchman is VP for Public Policy at Defense Strategies. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast at iTunes and Google Play, and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. Thank you.